0: Natalie Gartner says the state of Utah is at an inflection point. She calls it the new Utah. Today we're going to hear why Natalie, who's the director of the university's Chem C. Gardner Policy Institute, thinks this is the case and what it means for state leaders, policymakers, and well, all of us. Welcome to you rising, Natalie.
1: Happy to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me.
0: So the Desert News referred to you recently as, quote, the advisor to everyone who needs to make important policy decisions. And they also went on to say, you have the ear of, quote, governors, university presidents, planners, investors, and even members of the media trying to predict the future. That's quite a uh, notable uh, description.
1: I tell people if you get up at 6 in the morning for like 30 years, something good happens.
0: (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) I think it's accurate to say that under your leadership, the Kemp C. Gardner Policy Institute has produced the most impactful reports and analysis on what's happening in our state. So let's start off talking about the Institute and its role in shaping policy for Utah.
1: Yeah, happy to do that, Chris. I mean, the Institute has been around for about 10 years. We are housed in the Thomas S. Monson Center. That's about uh, 4th East, South Temple.
0: The mansion, as Uh you call it?
1: Yeah, the mansion. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gifted that to the U 2014. And it's home to the Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute. That was a vision of President Pershing and something that we've continued, of course.
0: So the Institute has produced so many important papers, including, in recent months, an analysis of the U.S. and Utah economy, a look at the status of our housing and construction markets, a master plan for meeting mental health needs. But let's focus on the new Utah, which identifies six significant transitions underway in the state. Do you want to kind of give us an overview?
1: I would love to do that. Can I tell you a little bit more about the Institute Please, as well? absolutely. I found, Chris, that in my public policy work that there is no shortage of demand for great information, data. If you think about it, policymakers have really hard jobs, and they have to make decisions whether they have data or not, uh, whether they have accurate data or not. And it turns out that the Gardner Institute sits right at that intersection of great research that happens at the university and policymaking. We call it the intersection of academia and action. And so that's really the role of the Institute to, to take the demographic work and the economic understanding that we have about our state and lay it out there for our decision makers so they can make informed decisions.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the new Utah report. So it identifies six uh, significant transitions underway in the state. So do you want to kind of over, give us an overview of that?
1: I do. And I'll, I'll describe it this way. The Gardner Institute, you know, we have about 32 researchers That spend all day thinking about trends impacting our state, doing population estimates, economic forecasts, uh, research on important public policies. Coming out of the pandemic, it became clear that something was different. And, you know, we felt that in all sorts of things. But in Utah, a couple of things we noticed. We became a mid-sized state. And this is just looking at the 2020 census and where we rank among states. There's 20 states that have a smaller population than Utah. That's quite a few. Mm-hmm. You know that puts us up in the middle uh, category. Uh, mid-sized states they have different you know characteristics. One of them is that they can attract more major league sports franchises. So we know that we're actively seeking as a community major league baseball and uh, the National Hockey League. You know mid-sized states also have some real challenges more congestion. In our state, air quality becomes a big challenge. Mm-hmm. So we notice these changes. And, and if I had to characterize them, there's four demographic. Our growth, which made us a mid-sized state. Our racial and ethnic diversity we've become very multicultural. About one in four Utahns come from a racial and ethnic minority. It's one in 10 when I started my public policy career. So to go from one in 10 right, to one in right. four, you know, we're aging. So we have a much older population. That's true everywhere, but it, it changes the structure of your economy. You consume more health care. You have to change the way you build housing and the way people get around. And then we have two economic trends. One is we've just had an elite economy. And I can give more evidence of that if you're interested.
0: And, and, just, and define elite economy. I know you've got yeah, a specific definition well,
1: of Well, you know, we've always outperformed the nation. And when I say elite, I'm thinking like top three over many consecutive years. So, and, you know, so top three in job growth. And we have had this, you know, decade of really strong employment growth. And even though we had a recession during the pandemic, it wasn't as acute in Utah. And we got out of it much more quickly and have maintained a high level now for a good set of time. So we have this elite economy. And then the last. Transition is is one that's not very fun to talk about, but we've become unaffordable, and specifically in housing, and that didn't that didn't really start to take form until about 2018. But now we have the eighth most expensive housing market in the country. I never thought I'd say that. That's just a measure of uh, you know single family median home prices, and when I say eighth, that includes the District of Columbia. Wow. So you seven states yeah. and then
0: DC. So great if you own a home already, but not great if you're trying to buy one.
1: And a really important point, because people that are already wealthy get wealthier. And then people that are not in the ownership class, if you will, they have to wait longer to be in a position to buy a home and maybe not buy a home. And that's, you know, the way that we accumulate the most wealth in this country.
0: Let me ask you about the elite economy, because I'm curious, you know, for someone who's maybe from outside of Utah and is moving here and they look at that. What are the factors? I mean, you know, the legislature is in session right now, and folks find plenty of reasons to complain, but Utah has been a well-managed state.
1: Yeah. There's, a, there's several things to point out, but uh, among the most important is we – because of our demographic growth, that just your sheer population growth drives economic growth, more consumers. And then we have this terrific attribute of being a very diverse economy economically diverse and what that means is we have a lot of industries here. So the best way to think of that is think of Nevada how they have gaming, the gambling industry, and then they have mining. But you know, they've struggled to fill in all the other industries. Same thing in Wyoming, uh, very dependent on oil, and gas, and coal. In Utah, you can name almost any industry. I'll, I'll try a few, you know, defense, agriculture, tech, energy, warehousing, distribution. We do a lot of health care for the surrounding region, education for the surrounding region. These are all really important industries in our state and, and tourism. So during the pandemic, tourism really suffered, but we had other industries that did well. And so, you know, it's this mix that gives you more stability and more resilience as an economy. Yeah. Those are just two examples. So that demographic growth and a diverse economy.
0: Right. Right. So in the introduction, we talked about, you know, what the, the policy institute does is create data and analysis to mm-hmm. make some difficult decisions. What, what 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 those transitions you talked about, uh where, where do you think you tell leaders need to be focused? Probably all of them, I it, suspect to No, the answer, there's some of
1: that, saying. but clearly Governor Cox has been very focused on housing. He's put forward a budget that's very, let's say, forward-leaning on housing, putting more money into, you know, housing grants for uh, new home buyers, housing preservation, and a lot of interest in working with local governments to do more permitting of housing so we get the supply up that we need. You know, I will say though that there's another transition that I think needs more attention and that is the fact that we're diversifying so rapidly. We're getting more of our growth from the outside than the inside right now. And if you just think about it, we're diversifying racially and ethnically, also diversifying with a new groups of Utah, you know, Utahns, new Utahns. There's a lot more voices here, Chris. And if I'm a policymaker, I want to listen to all those voices. They have different needs, different perspectives, different life experiences. And so I would really encourage and do this actively our decision makers to listen more, because there's new voices here.
0: Yeah. How do you connect that to the kind of what I would describe my words, urban-rural divide? Mm-hmm. You know. Utah is growing, like you said, so quickly. Eighth expensive uh, mm-hmm. the housing market. We also got you know rural mm-hmm. uh, communities, farming, you know, mining. Mm-hmm. How does this report? How, how do you how do you bring these two worlds together yeah. a little bit for lawmakers? Well,
1: it's, it's very true that we have what could be thought of as two Utahs. Now, not all of rural Utah struggles, but a lot of rural Utah does. And a good way for our listeners to think about that is to just think of eastern Utah. This is, I'll use some county names, uh, Duchesne, Uinta, Grand, San Juan, Carbon, Emory. Maybe just by hearing those names, Chris, you kind of could glean that those were energy counties, you know, right, a county like right, Carbon. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, energy counties have uh, an ebb and flow that is dependent on the price of oil and, you know, price of natural resources. Uh, but typically, if I look at a map of unemployment rates or job growth rates, eastern Utah has some of the you know, biggest struggles in our state. And so that's those are voices we need to, to listen to. And interestingly, there's an absolute connection. We get our energy, you know, we light our homes and heat our homes with a lot of the energy that comes from rural Utah. And by the same token, you know, we provide a lot of uh, benefits to them.
0: Right. All right, let me switch gears a little bit. You know, we've talked about the change the state's going through, and a lot of this I think you've attributed to hosting the 2002 Winter Olympics. And so a lot of our listeners weren't probably in Utah in 2002. Do you want to talk about what that the impact those Winter Games were on the state? And, of course, then I'll ask you about what do you think the, the next round, potentially, of Olympics might mean for us.
1: Well, the 2002 Olympic Winter Games, you know, they were magical for this state. We dreamed big and we delivered. And... You know, it, it's been said that they were among the best uh, Winter Olympics in history, just by measured by how they played out. I remember, you might remember this, Chris, but it snowed the morning of opening ceremony, and then it didn't snow again until it was done. And that's exactly what you want, because <laughs> you know, snow removal is very difficult, avalanche is very difficult. Uh, so we had a really great go. And uh, okay, uh, were you,
0: you were in the governor's office? I was. I time.
1: was um, I was very involved, I would say. I had the same credentials as the governor, which was a neat way of saying that, you know, I got right. to see a lot of important things. I remember spending time in Athletes Village here up at the campus. Uh, certainly saw Sarah Hughes, you know, compete. Uh, that was the Olympic gold medalist. Saw Apollo Anton Ono, you know, skate in the short track. So just, you know, spent time at medals plaza the ceremony. Think about this. There were, I think the number is 1.2 billion people watched opening ceremony rice eccles stadium 1.2 billion
0: people That's billion with a b
1: yeah we don't you don't do that very often yeah. and uh so you know what was the impact well certainly there was a lot of economic impact uh, a lot of money that came into the state to put on the games a lot of visitors a lot of federal money came into the state to help with Security. Yeah, to yeah. a lot of infrastructure yeah. and different things but you know i'm the type of economist that sees something very different in the economic impact, I feel like the greatest impact was the confidence we developed as a state that we could do big things and that the world got to see us. And I tell people that the economic impact of the Games was bigger in year five than it was in the year of because it built, you know, right. over time. And the tourism right. data, you know, would which, which suggest that. And so magical, impactful, and – um there's more than a million people in our state that weren't here in 2002 that we'll now get to see. I think we'll add another 800,000 between now and when we host again. Yeah. So 1.8 million more people to see the games. Yes,
0: let's talk about that. Uh, you know 20 years down the road, 2034 is what we're looking at. As significant? Or was that 2002 a moment in time?
1: Yeah. You know, if you look at the numbers, it's interesting. Because we've already built all the facilities, bobsled, luge speed track, you know, ski jumps, we don't have to build those again. So the actual economic impact like that you measure in numbers that you quantify is a little bit smaller, even though the games are bigger now, you know, with more sports and different things. So that's sort of interesting. But I would also say again, that the biggest impact will be that we have to get better in every way before you have the eyes of the world on you. And Policymakers in the state are actively thinking about in the next 10 years, what can we do to help with our mental health issues, with our air quality issues, with the Great Salt Lake, you know, with all of these challenges that we want to show right for the world. And so it becomes a powerful, motivating force.
0: So we talk about growth a lot. And I think of my parents who are in their 80s. I think about some of the neighbors at the University of Utah. And growth is, is almost a dirty word sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to be back. I want the university to be a size. I want less traffic. How do you? What, what's the positive message out there? <laughs> and this is for my parents specifically. Yeah. I hear them talk about this all the time. They just want it to be 1970 again.
1: Yeah. You know, the best way to think of that is think of the alternative. You typically can't stand still. And so you decline or you grow. And what we have to do is grow in a managed way, in a smart way. And my experience with our, you know, decision makers in the state, they understand that. You know, look at what they did way back when to invest in tracks and front runner. That We were ahead of our time. Look at what they've done to, you know, keep our traffic flowing. Look at what they've done at this campus. Look at, you know, the facilities that they've invested in here, you know, so that our students have this incredible experience. Economies grow because of investment and productivity. And... Our leaders understand that and invest in that. And so the key to growth is to stay ahead of it, not get behind. Invest, invest, invest. Take this elite economy and don't squander it. Invest in the future. That's the best advice.
0: That's solid advice. Let's talk about housing a little bit because I think that's kind of a natural link here. So you mentioned eighth most expensive markets. Housing prices have increased 46% since January 2020. You know, other states are, are facing this, um, but, you know, it impacts first-time homebuyers. Solutions to the problem?
1: Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, that's one of the tricky things is it's not entirely clear how you do this. It's a hard thing. It's going to take both the private sector and the public sector to get on top of it. The most important thing is we need supply, right? We need more housing units so that, you know, we have places for the growth uh, to be and I would suggest that one of the best things we can do is train the workers to build those homes and to adjust our policies to create more land availability for the market-based zoning. So increased densities is really what I'm saying there, Chris. And then lastly, we've got to change our behavior. As you know, everybody wants to see, you know, higher density housing, but not next to them. And that's another way of saying that you don't want school teachers and snow you know, snowplow drivers and first responders sit, you know, living by you, your kids living by you. And so we need to change our behavior. We need to understand that Utah's a mid-sized state with uh, a lot of growth pressures. And we're not our grandmother's Utah anymore. We're changing, but we can preserve quality and invest in the future at the same time.
0: And from an optimistic perspective, because you are one of the most optimistic <laughs> people I know, is that I think a lot of states would love to have these problems.
1: Wouldn't they? Yes Yeah, yeah. You know, is- Governor Herbert was always fond of saying he'd go to National Governors Association meetings and they'd say, you know, all the states, Utah has them in their rearview mirror.
0: So you have advised governors, you've advised cabinet secretaries, you're advising university presidents now. For, for, for someone who, who looks at your career, you know, but now, now I maybe think thinking about our students who might listen to this, who mm-hmm. are studying. What, what advice do you give you know, our, our junior, senior students who want to get into public policy or government work? Um, I mean, you've had such an amazing career. When you meet with, with younger students in their 20s, what, what advice do you impart to them career-wise?
1: Oh, I always encourage them to move towards energy. Where do they feel energized? And I'm a big believer in just being directionally correct. You know, you don't have to nail it. You don't have to know specifically. You just kind of got to, am I a humanities person or a social science person or a science person? You know, and then kind of get into that field. And then, you know, explore more and, and iterate around a directionally correct, you know, way that you're feeling energy. I would also say to people that are interested in public policy among our students is there's incredible demand and need. We have an incredible master's in public policy program here. We hire a lot of graduates from the MPP program. I think uh, degrees in economics, uh, both in the College of Social and Behavioral Science and the David Eccles School of Business, those are terrific degrees for us, for, for our institute hire. We hire people to get the demography certificate because we do a lot of demographic research. So if you like public policy, you can get a job in it.
0: Yeah, well, look, I, you know, I've got my own master's in public administration from the U, and what I loved about that program was the practicality of it. Yeah, you know, you've got data, you've got the analysis, but also, you know, the, the work is about improving people's lives.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, you know, I, I come from a big family, and I sometimes look at what some of my siblings do for a living, and they're great, and I'm sure they move towards energy to, to become what they became. But I'm, you know, mindful that in my work, I always go home. Uh, feeling a sense of community and accomplishment from serving your community you may not make the most money you know you may not you know have the best hours and some different things but you create impact every day and that's a that's really gratifying
0: so bringing it back to campus one of your one of your titles is your you know you obviously lead the the policy institute you are, you uh, you know, you still have a role in the business school. Uh, you have a role in the, the College of Social Behavioral Sciences, but you're also a senior advisor to President Randall. And one, one of the things I know we talk about in Cabinet a lot is the perception of higher education, not only in Utah, but but nationwide. And the data is alarming. Public opinion around higher mm-hmm. ed is as low as I've ever seen it. Mm-hmm. What do you attribute that to, and, mm-hmm. and what can we do to, to improve that?
1: Chris, I'm very fond of the book A Time to Build, by Yuval Levin. Yuval writes about institutions, the durable forms of human life. It's the things we do together, associational life. And in it, he has chapters on all the different institutions, whether it's Congress, the media, higher ed, the Supreme Court. And he documents that America's losing trust in their institutions, that institutions are in decline. I think that's at the heart of this problem we're having in higher ed, We've lost trust and we need to gain it back. I think people are dismayed even though they shouldn't be <laughs> um, because we know that we create great value here at the University of Utah. But they're worried about the cost of higher education and they're worried about whether they have the ability to say what they think in the marketplace of ideas on our campuses. So all of those things are colliding right. you know, and creating um, a lack of trust with our institutions, and, and in this case, higher ed. And I guess I would say that our job as uh, higher ed leaders is to you know, listen, and, and then you know, get better, and to also inform. Mm-hmm. Because you know, if, you're not, if you're not spending a lot of time on campuses, maybe you don't understand how they work and the importance of the academy, the importance of research. I've become fond of saying we didn't get a man on the moon or we didn't map out the human genome or we didn't get batteries for our electric vehicles without all this research. We forget how much it improves our lives. And research universities are that force for our country and for the world. And so some combination of listening and getting better – and informing is, is what I think is the answer.
0: Utah has such an amazing system of higher ed. It seems so balanced between the, the research universities at Utah State and here and, you know, our our training programs and our trade schools. I and mean, everybody, everybody has a connection to higher ed in this state. I, mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. I think it's a matter of probably activating those audiences a little bit. And one of the things, you know, you and I have both been on these road trips with with President Randall just visiting the state and making mm-hmm. sure the University of Utah is present out there.
1: Yeah. Well, and let's be honest. If all of these institutions of higher learning bring their strengths to the community, that's its impact. Yeah. And in the case of the University of Utah, our strengths
0: are many. Again, I come back to that. You know, I, think, I think other leaders at the meetings I go to, I'm sure the same ones you do nationally – they, they're like, these are not problems. <laughs> you guys have a lot of opportunity. Yeah. So Natalie, at a, at a recent chamber meeting, Policy Institute, in partnership with the chamber, released Utah Informed, which, which during the legislative session is super helpful. Talk about that publication.
1: We call it visual intellection. Chris, have you ever heard that term, intellection? I have not. <laughs> it's this idea that visually you can tell a story. And we curate, you know, basically for the you know past six months all of the things you need to know to make informed decisions in 2024. And so it's all filled with graphs and quotes. And, you know, you can't pick it up without feeling the, the weight of the future decisions we need to make. And it's under the basic premise that if, we, if people are informed, they'll make good decisions. And so Utah Informed, you can see it at Gardner.Utah.edu. And again, visual intellection. Or the things you need to know in 2024 to make informed decisions
0: all right so i will call you the oracle you probably don't like that but last question utah legislatures back in session talk about the conversations you're having behind the scenes you know it's a long 45 days but uh yeah. what what to what do, what do people what should people be watching
1: chris you know i've become fond of that term strategic patience and i think that's really important with legislative sessions It's a messy process. It's a complicated process. We think 45 days, so it's short, but it's actually a long process. It's circuitous and a lot of, you know, twists and turns. There's a lot of checks and balances. You'll see things you don't like, and then things will come around. In the end, you know, we get a lot of accolades as a state for balancing our budget. As you know, our state has invested a lot in higher education in the past, more so than most states Still taking a huge interest in in institutions of higher learning, so I just would encourage people to be uh, patient, strategically patient, and uh, and then make sure your voice is heard. We, you and I, were at an event last week where a phone rang while the governor was speaking, and he joked with it and he said, "That's me calling. You know, I need you to answer that call and step up and be engaged and be a part of you know leading this state." And I've had fun kind of turning that around and saying, we're calling you too. <laughs> so we need them to listen to us as well. So some combination of that, I feel very confident that in the end, we'll be um, proud of many of the things that happen in the legislative session. And the things that don't turn out, there's interim for the next nine
0: months. Yeah, uh, your, your optimism is infectious. And it is, it is wonderful. And it's a joy working with you. So thanks for joining us on you yeah. Rising. Thanks, we'll you Chris. Back.
1: Pleasure working with you as well.
0: Listeners, that's it for today's episode of U-Rising. You'll find links to the reports we've talked about today in the transcript online at, at the slash u-rising. Our executive producer is Brooke Adams, and our technical producer is Robert Nelson. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Chris Nelson. Thanks for listening.